unapproachable, narrow-minded, bigoted. These are some of the words that sometimes is used of Christians. Or you look at Christian history, you think of violence, you think of greed, you think of nepotism, you think of sexual misconduct, you think of abuse. These are some of the sins, the blood on the church's history. The question is, along these realities that happen within the church, where is Jesus? Now, perhaps you're listening and you're confused why I'm starting here. Today is Palm Sunday. We celebrate when Jesus, the week before he died on the cross and was resurrected, we celebrate when Jesus walked through the Golden Gate up through Jerusalem and arrived as king. This is actually the same pathway that Alexander the Great took when he conquered Jerusalem. It's the entry and the pathway of kings, and it's Jesus planting his flag and saying, I am king over all creation. So why today, as we celebrate, Palm Sunday, as we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry, why today are we talking about the failures of the church? Why are we talking about the failures of the religious community? Well, that's how the story goes in Scripture. In John chapter 12, one of the four biographies that we have of Jesus, we actually get to see this triumphal entry. But at the end of chapter 11, which is where we're going to be today, what we see is religious leaders and the religious community failing and failing miserably. So to that end, we are going to see how this anticipates and how this leads us into the work of Jesus. So if you have a Bible or a device, turn with me to John chapter 11, starting at verse 45. And just prior to this, uh, this Jesus has just performed a major miracle. He's raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And he now enters into what is a very confusing moment. So verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in them, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So you see right from the beginning this divide. Some people believe in Jesus. Others operate in fear and uncertainty of what the Roman authorities will do. What I want to do is I just want to focus on that word Roman. It is something that we probably gloss over in the context of this passage, but it's significant. We've just spent three months walking through Israel being redeemed from slavery in Egypt, and they now find themselves under Roman occupation. And what they kind of started to think through was they needed this new type of exodus, thus the name of our series, New Exodus. They needed a new exodus from Roman occupation, from all of the struggles and the frustrations frustrations and the oppression and the injustice that came with their Roman occupiers. They wanted to resist it. But what I specifically want to emphasize today is not only that Israel was under Roman occupation. Here's my belief. We are under Roman occupation. You are under Roman occupation. Now that sounds weird. Rome fell some 1,600 years ago. But let me show you what I mean, that the general temptations and the tendencies of a Roman society are strikingly similar to what we see today. 
Let me start first of all with the vision of the economy or of finances. In the city of Pompeii, which was covered over by a volcano, archaeologists have found this. The volcano eruption would have happened some four decades after the time of Jesus. Archaeologists have found a home etched into the floor, the words salve lucrum. And what those words mean is glory to profit or money is happiness. The vision of, of the economy and the vision of happiness and the vision of goodness was related to money and to profit. And I was thinking, man, you could probably like, rather than etching in floor, find some sort of like floor mat or bath rug or bumper sticker. But then I discovered that a month ago today, March 2nd, 2023, a doctor posted an article about how the medical field has just been totally wrapped up in the pursuit of money. And you know what he titled it? Salve lucrum. We are under Roman occupation, the tendencies of Roman society still define us today. And I would say also, sometimes we like to imagine like everyone above us in our in tax brackets are, they're the ones who really struggle with the need for money, the desire for money, the belief that money is happiness. But keep in mind that if you're watching this video, you are one of the wealthiest people on planet Earth. We are under Roman occupation. Another area in terms of the wrestling with sexuality that we see today, but also that we saw in Roman society. The Romans inherited from the Greeks different plays, theaters, and festivals that would use expressions of sexuality to worship the gods. But what the Romans brought in as they started to experience more of these celebrations is they also had a deep sense of shame as well. So they would continue these festivals, they would continue these plays, but the actors who were within them were banned from all levels of civic authority, civic particip participation. They were in some ways like lower class citizens. The two categories that they operated with were celebration and shame. So I wanted to note this. What we today call a traditional sexual ethic was at one time a radical alternative that didn't just have categories of celebration and shame, but had categories of unity, that had categories of loyalty, that had categories of holiness, that had categories of sacrificial love. But all that was left at that time was celebration and shame. And as I look at us today, I think those are the definitive categories as we wrestle with sexuality. Either you step into full-blown celebration of everything related to sexuality, or you harbor a deep sense of shame. And for the most part, most of us kind of are a mixed bag. We tend to be celebratory in certain experiences and shameful of others. And we do not have the categories that were offered in the New Testament, the second portion of scripture of unity, loyalty, holiness, sacrificial love when it comes to our vision of sexuality. Another one, this is probably my favorite. You might know that the Romans had a pantheon of gods. Well, listen to some of the different ones that they had. They had the god Agonoria, who would excite them to action. They had a temple in the city of Rome. They had the goddess Stimula, who would stimulate them to unusual action. The goddess Mercia, who would not move people beyond measure, but make them kind of slothful or lazy. The goddess Strenua, who would make them strenuous. But outside of the, outside of the, uh, sent the town center, the city center, outside the gates, whereas all these ones were in the gates, they had the temple restricted beyond the city for the goddess 
quiet or quiet. And to me, this is just like such a perfect metaphor of where we are today, that the city itself can be anchored around busyness, around activity, even around laziness, but heaven forbid that we bring quiet into our place. Quiet has no welcome here. We'll be busy and we'll be lazy, but we won't be quiet. Studies show that younger generations increasingly struggle with sitting alone with their thoughts at all in quiet. You go through your day, you have some sort of thing like you're scrolling, you listen to a podcast, you have stuff going on at work, conversations, you come home, more podcasts, throw on Netflix, watch YouTube, whatever it is that we very rarely engage in quiet at all. Perhaps it's not surprising that Augustine, writing around the time as Rome started to crumble, defined the Roman country this way. And man, this just sounds like us. Relatively wealthy, but anxious, discontent, bitter, never secure, uneasy, always exhausted, always greedy, and even just having some sense of ongoing misery. We are under Roman occupation. That sounds exactly like us. It sounds many times like my own experience. Last of all, Augustine in the same place in the book City of God writes what he considers to be the greatest marker of Roman society. He says this, the lust of rule, what we could also call the desire for power, the lust of rule existed among the Romans in more unmitigated intensity than among any other people. It's the desire for power. This actually is exactly what we see happening among the religious leaders in John chapter 11. Read verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. When they talk about our place, they're referring to their temple, their sacred site where God actually dwelled with his people. When they talk about their nation, they're talking about the nation of Israel. And out of fear of government, they were worried about these things being lost. And the issue, I think, is that they are not referring to these things as God's temple or as God's nation, but that they themselves are in possession of it and fearful of them losing what actually didn't belong to them. It's a desire for power. And it's specifically attributed to the religious leaders. See, not only are we under Roman occupation, but religious leaders are often under Roman occupation. Religious leaders are often the ones who fall victim to these tendencies. You go through that list, you think of the financial issues of Rome or tendencies. Can you think of pastors or Christian leaders whose ministries have been built more on amassing wealth than on actually serving God and serving people? Unfortunately, yeah. In the area of wrestling with sexuality, how many stories do we know of pastors engaged in sexual misconduct? Unfortunately, too many. In the area of quiet, how many Christian leaders do we know whose platform does not actually equal up to the level of intimacy and space that they've just spent with the person of Jesus? Unfortunately, too many. And in the lust of rule, unfortunately, I think sometimes those words could be ripped and put straight into situations where people out of fear of government intervention are fearful of losing our place and our nation. Religious leaders 
are under Roman occupation. Now, why do I start here? Perhaps you feel confused. Perhaps you're like, why is Nathan up here just trying to offend every person? <laughs> if you're listening and, and you're a guest, uh, you're, you're not someone who's within our church or within any context of any church, I just want to say this to you. Your perception probably of Christians is that our primarily primary idea when we talk about sin is to be directed towards you. What's fascinating to me is that Jesus' harshest rebuke is not against you. It's against me. It's against at least the first century equivalent of me, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. To them, he calls them snakes, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. Part of the reason, in fact, people think that Jesus was able to draw such large crowds. Two reasons are really evident why he was able to do that. One, he taught with an authority that nobody else did. Two, he performed miracles nobody else could. But there's a third one. When I heard this, I hadn't thought of it before, but it just made a lot of sense. He spoke against the corruption of religious leaders in ways that nobody else was able to. And there's something deeply appealing about that. And this is who Jesus is. I just want to note this. Amidst all the failures of the religious community, where is Jesus? Read down at verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Where is Jesus when Rome infects the religious leaders? He's hiding in the wilderness. In contrast to the Roman occupation that resists quiet, that puts it outside of the city, Jesus frequently prioritizes that. The language of wilderness is often used in these four biographies to describe that time when Jesus goes away to spend some time with his father in quiet. Where is Jesus? Well, as the Roman occupation is designed around profit and glory and happiness in your money, Jesus is someone who, in his career as an itinerant preacher, as a rabbi, we think, has no house. He does not retreat to his home. He retreats to the wilderness. This is a houseless man in a society of greed. This is a single man. In a society wrestling with sexuality, this is a single man who lived the fullest life any human ever lived. This is also someone who, when he does come and walks through the Golden Gate and proclaims that he is the Messiah, he does so riding a donkey. He's riding a donkey into Jerusalem. He's not on some high horse. He's not puffing out his chest. He, even in a proclamation of authority, which we often struggle with authority for many of the reasons on a religious level that I've talked about, but just like beyond across the board, we struggle with authority. He is offering an authority that is marked by deep, genuine humility. You know what he's doing? He's offering a radically different picture of what leadership should look like not marked by some sort of aggressive decision-making, not marked by having the ends justify the means, not marked by reach or influence, 
marked by humility, marked by quietness, marked by generosity. This is the person of Jesus. And this, just as an aside, is the type of leadership that we desperately need in all areas as pastors, as marketplace leaders, as leaders in homes and in families. This is the type of leadership that Jesus is inviting people into. And it's hilarious to me, if Jesus had some sort of PR specialist, what he would be thinking along the way, like Jesus literally, as I mentioned, just resurrected somebody from the dead. If there's any time to like buy a billboard, get your Facebook ads going, like this is the time. Expand your influence. And he hides in the wilderness. So here's what he's saying. If you do not prioritize these things as a leader, you will step into the failure of the religious leaders, which we will see, which is the single most damaging thing to the reputation of God in our society. Read with me in verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Great leadership, by the way. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The most significant religious leader in the entire nation of Israel decides to address the fears of Roman authority on the backs of the vulnerable. The ends justify the means. With murderous intentions, they lay out their plan to save their nation and their place. It's not textbook religious abuse. Even as I say those words, I just want to acknowledge like deep sensitivity to memories, even of some of you who are listening. I want to be cautious and wary there. And I do, want to, do not want to minimize that. And further, I want to acknowledge that I'm not an expert. I'm standing here, as I mentioned, as a religious leader. I'm not about to stand up here and offer some sort of like specific wisdom or guidance of what to do if you've experienced religious abuse, or I'm not going to provide the insight and how we prevent this from happening. I should not be the one standing here providing the wisdom in that. All I want to do is to look at the person of Jesus and see where he is in this story. See where he is in the midst of religious abuse. Where is he? Where is Jesus? Apparently he's dying. Where's Jesus in the midst of religious abuse? He's dying as a victim. He's dying as one man, not that the whole nation should perish. You know what's fascinating about this story is it didn't have to go this way. In some ways, it's already radical enough that Jesus died on a cross, that the God of the universe would become human in Jesus, enfleshed, and would die and suffer for all of creation. But even in the radical story of that, it did not have to happen at the abusive hands of religious leaders. And yet in one of the very few times in the Gospels, these biographies of Jesus that were told that someone beside Jesus prophesied, the intention here is that the religious leaders would misinterpret it and step into religious abuse. I don't know if you noticed that. 
Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And it's a true prophecy, but it's misinterpreted as their personal rescue with murderous intention. The way that this is set up is not some sort of like divine child abuse of Jesus. The way it's set up is that God, who is Jesus, and the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, decide together that the way the rescue of the world is going to happen is Jesus dying as a victim at the hands of religious leaders. Do you see what's going on here? There could be no greater stand on the side of victims as what happened in this story. Not only does Jesus stand on the side of victims, he dies as one. Not only does he resist the abusive powers of religious authority, he submits himself in this suffering. And in so doing, he somehow says that even this, and I, I speak here in deep caution and wariness, knowing that what it might sound like coming from a religious leader, but I just want to offer the words of Jesus. Even in this, as Jesus steps into that level of suffering and pain, he says, even this I can redeem. There's a verse coming to mind from the prophet Joel that uh, the Lord will restore the years that the locusts have stolen. This is the promise of Jesus that in participating in this type of suffering, he can restore that suffering. So what do you do with the level of religious abuse and pain in our world? I'm thinking of a quote from John Chrysostom, writing some 1,600 years ago. Now, do not such deeds deserve to be punished by 10,000 thunderbolts and a hellfire hotter than that which we are threatened in Holy Scripture? Yet these monstrous evils are born with by him who wills not the death of a sinner, that he may be converted and live. And how can one sufficiently marvel at his loving kindness and be amazed at his mercy? They who belong to Christ destroy the property of Christ more than enemies and adversaries. Yet the good Lord still deals gently with them and calls them to repentance. Glory be to you, O Lord. Glory to you. How vast is the depth of your loving kindness. How great the riches of your forbearance. In the frustrating scandal that is the work of Jesus, there is simultaneously the emphasis on the great judgment and the evil and the wickedness of religious abuse and still the opportunity for rescue. And if that's frustrating to you, you're probably starting to come close to understanding the work of Jesus. Unless you think that this is not about you, that this is just about religious leaders, read on to the end. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many of them went up to the country went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. After deciding with murderous intentions to kill the Son of God, they go and purify themselves. And not just the religious leaders, but the entire religious community. This is one of Jesus' harshest rebukes is targeted towards this kind of hypocrisy. 
And it's a particular issue within the church, I would say, for the hypocrisy to have to proclaim the goodness and the mercy of God, but to walk in some sort of like secret, hidden darkness. I was talking with some friends who uh, I wanted to ask them. I was talking about religious abuse, and I was talking to them about uh, this conversation. I wanted to open up, hear their thoughts. And what was fascinating to me is the first place that they went. They're not within, not within the church, not Christians, um, but uh, they the first place that they went was not actually like residential schools or uh, Christian nationalism or these types of things. The first place that they went was all the small abuses that they'd experienced at the hands of their close family and friends. Abuses that they described in such words as putting up major walls that they could not actually have deep relationships with or an abiding sense of disappointment from them, from their Christian family and friends. Now, these were the deep things that stung, and these were the deep things they thought of when they heard religious abuse. I think that makes a lot of sense in our city. city. The city of Abbotsford that has a dense community of Christians and also a dense community of people who are cynical of the church, who've been burnt by it, uh, who have scars from it, and who have deep animosity towards it. That it's actually in the failures of, of Christians that people think of when they think of religious abuse. It's not just some theoretical thing out there. So where is Jesus in all of this? Where is Jesus when religion becomes hypocrisy? He's starting a new exodus. Here's what I mean. We're told that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. In this story in John, Jesus is referred to as the Passover lamb. And if that means absolutely nothing to you, let me just turn back to where we've been over the last few months. We've been in the story of Exodus. We've been talking about Israel's rescue from slavery in Egypt and it comes in this key moment of deliverance to the Passover. It's the moment when they are finally let out of Egypt. So let me just read to you from this story. There's a sacrifice that's involved. There's a ritual that's involved. And along the way, people are, the Israel is saved from slavery. So read, let me read Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. This is a story that Israel rehearsed again and again. They saw the sacrifice of the, of the Passover lamb, which they remembered through eating and drinking. They remembered the cleansing that happened. They would drip the blood on that day. They dripped the blood along the doorposts. And they, got to, they witnessed the judgment of God passing over them. So why is Jesus described as the Passover lamb? Why is he described as we start this series called the New Exodus heading to Easter? Think of it like this. A week after this triumphal entry, a week after Jesus proclaims himself as king, riding on a donkey, he's led like a lamb slaughtered. His blood is splattered on the wooden crossbeams. And the judgment of God passes over his people. 
The story is deliberately set up to imagine us back in this Exodus moment, needing to be rescued from slavery and having a sacrifice along the way. But here's the fascinating thing. As this opens, we think it's Rome that we need to be delivered from. What about when it's religion? What about when it's actually the failures of the religious community and religious leaders and hypocrisy itself that actually needs rescue? Jesus comes to rescue us from even that, from the occupation and beyond, but also the stuff that happens within. This is our God. And this is what it is referring to when we talk about New Exodus. So in closing, just what I want to offer is just kind of like words of uh, proclamation and exhortation to the city of Abbotsford. What Abbotsford needs is not Christian leaders who are aggressive, authoritarian. We do not need more cover-ups. We do not need Christians who present perfect lives and yet live in darkness and hiddenness along the way. That's actually not what our city needs. What our city needs, apparently, are people who ride on donkeys. What our city needs, apparently, are people who go into the wilderness, into the quiet. What our people needs, what our city needs are people who have a radically different vision of generosity and of finances, who actually understand sexuality, not in terms of just like celebration and shame, but in terms of unity, loyalty, faithfulness, sacrificial love. This is actually what our city needs. Most of all, our city actually needs Jesus. Not some sort of filtered down version, but the honest Jesus who proclaims rebukes against his people and yet still lovingly sacrifices and dies for them. This is the invitation. So I just want to close with a special plea for the Christians watching to say, hey, Oftentimes we speak about like the gift of deliverance of sin from beyond, but for the Christians watching, if we could just be a people who would walk in repentance and seeking Jesus, that might be our greatest gift to our city. Maybe so. Let me close in prayer. Father, we love you. We worship you. And we ask, Lord, that you would cleanse us and purify us in ways that we ourselves cannot. We cannot do this on our own. We have uh, evil intentions along the way. But Lord, we need it and our city desperately needs you. Sometimes we need to get out of the way. So Lord, would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.